Hi guys and welcome back to another episode of the Transfy podcast with myself Paige Behan and the wonderful Jake Corda. So today we have a wonderful guest in and a friend of mine now for many years, uh, Noah Halpin. So if you'd like to introduce yourself now. Hi folks, thanks for having me. Um, yes, my name is Noah Halpin. I am a recently 30 year old uh, transgender man from North County, Dublin. I am the Community Aid Officer in Healthcare at Tenny, which is the Transgender Equality Network and uh, was the founder of the This Is Me Transgender Healthcare Campaign. Which is amazing. Yeah, it's amazing. Fast and off. the amount of times like Noah, Noah's name just most conversations I have lately is so Noah and I'm like yeah no I know Noah and they're like no do you really know Noah and I'm like yeah but um yeah so you have helped not only myself but you've helped an awful lot of people with regards to transition and any help with regards to kind of insight into what it takes to kind of help transition and kind of ease ease the the necessary restrictions that comes with transitioning yeah I think it's it's important, you know, not everyone's in a position to do it. So if you are in a position to do it, like such as I was, I think it's important because there's so little information out there for trans people. There's so little kind of step-by-step guides. The healthcare system changes so often that it's impossible for the community to keep up with it unless you're like actively involved. So, you know, I felt for me, I was in a position to help people to to help people along their journey and you know yeah but I think like for myself I also felt like for a long time when I first transitioned it was more of a case of me it wasn't not knowing too much about transitioning because I, I, I still personally feel now that my transition was the way I did it but I needed some sort of helping hands along the way and when I transitioned that kind of help wasn't around and then it's so refreshing to see somebody like you and you're you're out there you're vocal you're outspoken and you literally get things done and anybody that has questions in a sense of like how to go about certain things, you you are there and you're very supportive in that matter. And I think that's, I wish I kind of had that yeah. back, back I then, I you know. As well, yeah. I hadn't got a clue. Yeah. yeah. My doctors had no idea when I went to them initially first as well. And I was like, this is ridiculous. Like, mm. where do you turn to, yeah. you know? Yeah, no, I had the exact same experience. So I remember going to my GP. Actually, I tried to do it three times because I was so nervous. I'd known him all my life. He's actually one of my dad's friends no for way. years okay. so I was like oh Jesus like, oh. <laughs> One of them things, yeah. so I remember the first time I went to my GP and I went to was like, go and tell him today and you're in the, the waiting room and you're psyching yourself up and you're like no I'm gonna do it and then I ended up saying some absolute crap about like <laughs> having a sore ankle or something and I walked out going oh you idiot and then I tried it again the next time which I asked about some weird blemish on my finger that is not even worth asking about and then the third time when I finally was like you know I'm transgender and he just kind of went, okay, that's fine, but I don't know what to do with that information. So I was, he was like, you just need to go off, get the information, tell me who you need to go to, and I'll do that. So I very much took my own GP on a journey. On a journey. You know, I, I would say he, he has, now this, this GP I'm talking about since retired, but I have an, another GP. But very much like, as I always say, trans people often have to be their own doctors. Yeah. Yes. We have yeah. to take doctors with us on a journey yeah. and teach them as as we yeah. go yeah. but it's crazy to think that like when I first spoke about my experience with m- the beginning of my transition so to speak and then I spoke to other trans people about their journey transition it's the same thing mm-hmm. so like like we all have the same conversation about the doctors and our own GPs not knowing and like mainly family doctors and family general practitioners wouldn't necessarily know what to do because they don't have the adequate training for it but then as you said about going on your own journey like my doctor didn't know who to contact or didn't know so I went of my own accord and got that but even my testosterone blocker injection I remember going to her and she was like she's sitting there and she's reading the instructions on how to inject my T-blocker and I'm like oh same the first time I had a testosterone jab as well here we go so I left and I never went back so 
like I don't go to my GP for my own in T blocker, which I should. I inject it myself because I've taught myself how to do that because yeah. I'm uncomfortable with Are you on it. the pellet? The stomach, I'm on the pellet. Yes, yeah. I'm on. So we're probably on the exact same blocker. So uh, now most trans guys aren't on blockers because generally there's no need to be because testosterone is a dominant hormone and yeah. it normally works perfectly fine to block yeah. the adequate amount of estrogen yeah, yeah. that needs to be blocked. But some people just have strange levels and things. I'm one of those people. So my natural estrogen seems to break through all the time. Okay. So I have to be on an estrogen blocker. But it's the sa- It's actually the same blocker as a lot of trans feminine people it's would take. It's Zolidex. It's Zolidex no 10.5. 10. 5, yes. <laughs> oh, it's, it's, it's about the same but thickness as a ballpoint pen. I always say it's, it's like a cocktail straw. That's what it's yeah. like. But it's it's a really interesting drug because... It's used for prostate cancer and breast, and breast cancer. cancer. So it actually finds what hormone is naturally produced in and someone's body and blocks that. Yeah. So it's not for like one hormone or another. But it it's also blocks it from the brain as well. So the yeah. chemicals go through So in different countries, so in Ireland, the legislation right now in Ireland for types of blockers would be the Zolidex, the Gusarellin. But in America, they use spironolactone. But spironolactone is yeah. broken down in the kidneys and it's taken orally. But I find... The Zolidex is fine, but for the first three days I take my Zolidex, I do feel a little bit kind of sicky. I feel, I, I don't feel in any way kind of sick, but what I do is I'm weird in that, like, See, they I'm do I'm always late for mine, so that's probably why. <laughs> yeah. I'm always, like, three weeks late, and they're like, you should have, like, you're supposed to have this on the day, and I'm like, yeah. oh, well, like, look, I've been real busy. Like, <laughs> just well, didn't I have the time. Yeah. I just get that thing where they do it, for anyone who doesn't know, they kind of do it low down your stomach, so, like, on your trouser line. Yeah. And then I'm like always having to try to remind myself when I go to the doctor to get it done to wear like loose fitting like yeah. tracksuit bottoms yeah, yeah. because I'm one of these people who wear a belt every day yeah. so I'm like I come out and I'm sitting on the bus and with my so finger in my, my yeah. waistband and pulling it forward yeah. now it probably doesn't even hurt that much I'm just paranoid about it like, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah yeah it's so weird but even like, like it's so it's so easy to get it wrong as well because I remember when I first started injecting the Zolidex and I remember putting it in wrong and then I went and had my blood sewn and they were like, um, Paige, your testosterone levels are like through the roof. And I was like, I've, I've done my Zolidex. And they were like, and who put it in for you? And I was like, myself. And they were like, oh, no, 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 no. So I was, I had to reteach myself how to put it in. Now, I'm not condoning injecting your own Zolidex now, by the way, but <laughs> I'm just saying that. Well, you had to learn how to do it. 100%, so. yeah. Well, I had to learn how to do my testosterone injection myself because when I first got it, I kind of said, okay, well, I have this in my hand now, but show me how to do it. And they're like, oh, we only prescribe, we don't administer. And I was like, oh, for yes. God's sake. They were like, go to your GP. So I went to my GP and he was like, I've never done a testosterone injection. And I'd be on sustenance. So for people who don't know, sustenance is not really a liquid, it's an oil. So it's so thick, which means it has to be injected that little bit slower then because it's into the muscle, which means like if you go really fast, it can pull in the muscle and you'd be in a lot of pain for a few days. Um... So I was just like, I went to GP, didn't know how to do it, went to public health nurse, she was a bit reluctant. So I just took, like, I had this testosterone that I'd been waiting so many years and fighting for so hard that no one could do it. And I had it in my hands for like 12 days. And you then also I just can't said, wait then. No. It's, no, yeah. it's, it, you have it in your hand and you're like, you're finding people that are reluctant to give you this medication. That, as you said, they've been, you've been waiting for that you do take matters into your own hands oh, yeah. a lot of the time. I had to learn off YouTube. So I went on YouTube to learn how to do it and I absolutely <laughs> messed so up bad, the first one. You have to do that. Yeah, I, I couldn't walk for eight days. I couldn't go to work for eight days. I don't know what I did. Um, but... Then I, it got easier, but like I self-inject in a place where you're told not to because, yeah, it's, because it's very hard. It's kind of around the back of your hip. Mm-hmm. So it's really hard to actually twist that way and do yeah, it for that yeah. long. I imagine doing my own that way. Yeah, but I've tried the, the thigh, but each time it's caused lots of pain. Obviously, my, my thigh just isn't 
good for it or something. Yeah. But, you know, it does. Sometimes I mess it up. Sometimes I don't. But, um, you know, I get now. So like I'm what am I? I'm over two and a half. No, I'm nearly three years on testosterone. And I found that the first kind of year to year and a half, I had no trouble kind of self-injecting. I was like almost excited to do it. Yeah. And then I found the past like six months, it's become this big ordeal and this, I'm just going to delay it by a few days yeah. or I'm not in the yeah. mood today yeah. or, you know, that kind of stuff. And I was kind of looking into this more and I saw that a lot of other trans people around the kind of year, year and a half mark start getting this. And it's like injection fatigue where I think the first kind of year, year and a half, you know, after each shot, you're seeing changes. But then the, so novelty, but the do novelty does wear off. Yeah, and it's, then the yeah. changes are happening slower. So now it becomes this ugh, pain it's, it's for tedious. like, uh, yeah. So I've been getting that recently and I'm trying to work through that. It's kind of like this mental block at the moment, but um, I'm getting back on track with it. So, but it is, it, it is a common thing that not many people talk about. Yeah, and I, do you know what? Before you said that there, I, I didn't, I wouldn't have had any, any kind of inkling that that was a, a, a thing because lately I started progesterone there and progesterone isn't really given to trans women it's mainly just your, your estrogen and your blocker but I started progesterone and I've had really adverse effects from it and it's made me kind of very reluctant to take that pill every day and it's even making me reluctant to take my estrogen so it's kind of mm. like trying to work through that mental block because yeah. it's it's worth it in the long run but like it, like immediately it's it's just no and no. people think we take these decisions on a whim no I know, I know. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. as if like yeah, I would yeah. rather not a chance I would rather not have a cocktail straw put into my stomach no. every three months no. or inject no. myself in but the look, hip every two these weeks these are the things yeah. that we have to do and then moving on from that then you have the whole task of getting that in the first place so like in order to in order to be prescribed this kind of medication you have to be deemed you have to be deemed fit for it I'd say <laughs> more or less by like means of psychological assessments yeah. and being deemed as having gender dysphoria and all these certain things. So it's like a rigmarole. You have to like jump through all these hoops and it kind of becomes a case where it's like you're going to these appointments and these reviews and you're saying the same things that you've said three months prior and it's just being written down again and they, they don't even bother to turn back a few pages to see yeah. that you've answered the same question. Yeah. And it's more or less you're trying to prove to them that you are trans enough or you're worthy enough to take this medication no it's more that you are their version of trans yes um, so what I always say about the model of care and I use care very flippantly <laughs> um, <laughs> <That's true. laughs> um, but what I always find is that our system works off this model of having to prove yourself as opposed to a model of being believed. Yeah. So, you know, an informed consent model, which is what we should be practicing in Ireland, which is international best practice standards of care by WPAT, the World Association for Transgender Health, we don't practice that. So instead, trans people in Ireland have to constantly prove that they are, you know, one or two clinicians version of trans, yeah. not what the reality of being trans is. But do you not also feel like that that absolves liability on their part? Because it's like, right, so let's say, for instance, we were to prescribe this life-changing hormone to you and then you turn around down the line and say, well, I didn't want that. Well, when it comes to liability, they're actually less liable by using an informed consent model because you have to sign off to say that you understand. There, now, there is an evaluation, but it's not like the evaluation we have here. It's called a psychosocial evaluation, which means that somebody assesses whether you are sound of mind enough to make this decision and that you understand side effects that are going to happen. And you personally sign that form to say that, you know, you, you understand this. So that actually takes a lot of liability away from clinicians when you personally, like, it's not going to stand very well in court if I get up there 
and say, oh, well, I regret this. And then they say, well, here's the form you signed yeah, exactly. to give yeah, us permission so to give it to really, you. Yeah. Now, yeah. and when you're talking about that, that we're kind of talking about detransition. People who detransition make up, so we're already one to two percent of the population. And of that percentage, only 0.01 people ever detransition. detransition. Yeah. So you're talking like that is extremely, that would be like two or three people in this whole country. So they cannot keep using this gatekeeping model based on a statistic that hardly even registers on the statistical yeah. stage. Yeah. Like think of people who get tattoos or cosmetic surgeries and regret yeah. that. Like, but yeah. no one's ta- like, yeah. you know, no one's yeah. taking that away from people. Yeah. It's, even as you were saying though about the model of the whole informed consent here it's completely different like I remember going to Lachlan Sound and having a psychiatric evaluation and it was three hours long and they they lit they like sit you on a chair and then there's a social worker and then there's two doctors and they sit there and take notes and they ask you like mental questions like so how's how is family life growing up and what did your mother do for a living and your father do for a living and they try and develop they really pick at everything they pick they? at everything but it's like that they're looking for a reason to deny you access to hormones based yeah. on your past or some sort of trauma that you had. And yes. not like I've spoken to different trans people that have had them evaluations and have lied in those evaluations so just to many prove people. just to try and fit that kind of conformative box to So many people do. And and it's not just questions about your past or traumas or your family, but like we're Sexual asked about as well. oh, I was asked what kind of porn I watch. Yeah, I was yeah. asked They're very invasive. Yeah, very, very invasive. I was asked how For I no pick reason. up men. Yeah. I was asked if I masturbate. I was asked what t- um what else? Uh, I was asked questions about how I feel when I receive oral sex. Yeah. And what how the mechanics play out yeah. when I have sex. I'm like yeah. What has this got to do with my gender identity? Exactly. I mean, I like, and almost like when I said I was a gay man, it was almost like they they were making out like you can't be a trans gay man, and I'm like, I find that they don't necessarily really understand the ins and outs of it. No, they they really don't. No, No. having a clue. No, having a clue. But it is like like you said, it's this three hour assessment and then a follow up assessment that usually takes you know anywhere from forty minutes to an hour and a half, and then there's a, a multidisciplinary team meeting with them all where they put people's cases in front on the table and then they decide whether you go forward for hormones or if you don't and you know if you don't there's no support provided to you when you're told that or when you're being told you know we have to delay a little bit you know which is absolutely just like I would say it's barbaric like people are already waiting on a three and a half year long waiting list they finally think they're moving then they're told they have to wait longer and there's no kind of follow-up support. There's no kind there's of explanation. Nothing. And there's nothing. it's no, these people isn't. playing gods with people's lives. And when we talk about hormone replacement therapy, that's a therapy that if you are cis, you can walk into a GP and get within 15 minutes. Yeah. If you're, say, a woman going through the menopause, a man who has low uh, levels of testosterone. They prescribe you HRT yeah. there and then. My it's, mother, yeah. went to the, when she went to a GP about six months ago and told my GP that she was going through this thing and all of a sudden within 15 minutes she had a prescription for estrogen in her yeah. hands and I was like I waited two and a half years for that and what it's the, the same monitoring and it's the same treatment and yeah. it's just but I think in Ireland our clinicians our medical professionals they're scared they're scared yeah. of treating trans people because this really ill-informed and it's fairly unknown yeah well it's not even that it's unknown it's more so that fear has been put into them about this whole thing about detransition when it like it, it is not you cannot put that fear into clinician when that statistic is just so utterly low yeah. but they're also afraid because they have gotten this misinformation for from like self-proclaimed experts in the area mm-hmm. um and it just it it 
does nothing but damage the trans community. Yeah. And then if, even when it comes to, so like I went to the clinic in Loughlin Sound in January and they looked at my bloods, the same thing. Like I didn't have to travel that far for the questions that was asked to me. And then I, I had brought a progesterone of my own kind of um, research and he was like, yeah, that's no problem. We'll start on that now. And then he was like, well, we'll see it in six months time, but it's okay. Instead of you coming into the clinic, we'll just give you a call. Mm. So they put me on a medication that isn't really used like broadly with trans people. They put me on that medication and they're giving me a phone review in six months. So there's no follow up. There's no mm. link in. There's no. So how are you feeling since you start taking this new medication that's going to completely mess with your mood, mess yeah. with yeah. everything. It messes with your, your physiological function. Like, yeah. I did, like I just think it's mad. And now next week I'm going to get a 15 minute phone call to see how I'm doing. And then when yeah. it came to my, me having bottom surgery. I was supposed to have bottom surgery in November this year and they were like, oh, so it's pushed back like another 12 to 16 months. But this is the fourth time they've pushed it back yeah. that time frame. So it's kind of like, okay, I'm 23 years of age now. By the sounds of it, I'm probably going to be nearer 30 by the time I have surgery. Yeah. Which is absolutely ridiculous. Yeah, it is. Mm -hmm. It is ridiculous. Yeah. And then like when, when you talk about surgery is the fact that, you know, all trans people in Ireland have to travel abroad. Yeah. yeah. Like that is... We've seen it time and time again where we're pushing our, I'm doing for people who can't see inverted commas, our, uh, our um, undesirable healthcare yeah. abroad um, all the time. And it's not like there aren't the numbers in this country to warrant this being provided. There are, um, you know, hundreds of trans people go abroad every single year to have these major invasive surgeries and we don't have aftercare when we come home. And that's oh, yeah. dangerous. Um, See, even for trans men, like mastectomies are performed here every day. Every, every day. single day. Every single day. Yeah. But a trans man has to go abroad to have a mastectomy. I think that's absolutely, uh, that is barbaric, as you said it earlier, is, yeah. barbaric. Yeah, and there's no bottom surgery provided for any no. trans people no. in the country, in, the, in, in Ireland. And, you know, that is, they are major surgeries. Um, and I just find it just so bizarre that we don't have that. Now, I understand that, we do need to make sure we have hospital beds available for mm -hmm. this. We do need to make sure we have theatre spaces available for this. We need to make sure that we have upskilled surgeons that can do it. But the HSE are very much like, but do we warrant it with the numbers? And I'm like, we actually do. But you are never going to know the true numbers because most trans people go privately abroad where you yeah. can't, connect, can't collect you go, yeah. statistics. Yeah. Exactly. And you're just, you're actually creating this problem. Yeah. So... You know, there's no reason why we cannot do that here in this country. That I was about to say the appetite is there for, but the, that's not the right word. <laughs> <laughs> the need, well. the need is there for it. Um, so yeah, it's just, it's just crazy that that we are all traveling abroad. And like I had to travel abroad myself to Poland, which yeah. you know, when I was going. I was so excited and I was like, because you're waiting for this for so long. But it's also like, it's exciting and then you get there and then it, it, it becomes nerve wracking. Mm -hmm. And you, you went, you went with somebody. I went with, yeah, one of my best friends, Will St. Ledger, he, he came over with me. Um, but the problem with that is it's not just tolling on the person who's having the surgery. So all of a sudden I've put Will, who's not a medical professional, he's an activist and artist, mm -hmm. you know, into a position where he had to care for me after quite a large surgery, I had to pull him away from Ireland for two weeks, pull him away from his work. The two of us were very isolated, pushed together the whole time, both very tired. Will had to listen to me constantly complaining about how sore I was, knowing he couldn't do very much about yeah. it. Yeah. And the two of us have never had a row in our lives until we got to Poland. 
you know what I mean? And it was yeah. just this really well, it's a stressful intense situation, though, isn't it? It's but then so after, after that, coming going through all of that with somebody that is not a medical professional but is your friend and is there to support you, coming home to no available means of like access to prescriptions for painkillers, access to follow up treatments yeah. and stuff like that. I think that's madness for you to come home after such a major surgery and have nothing given to you no. when you get back. I had to get a friend of mine who was a nurse over to my apartment to check my wounds. And it's, you have to remember, I am very privileged in that a lot of my friends work in the medical profession. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Most trans people don't know people working in the medical no, profession. No. I am one of these extremely lucky people that I can call up a couple of friends and say, Ugh, or take a picture of something. Like, yeah, Is this affected? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Help me. <laughs> it's like, like being involved in like um, both trans healthcare activism and HIV activism, you know, naturally a lot of our friends will be involved in... In the medical in profession, the med- yeah. Or especially in the sexual health profession. And like, it's it's so funny because the amount of times like people be sending pictures of like their genitals and stuff and be like, do you think there's something wrong here? Like, I have to go to the clinic and you're like, I fucking love that I have that openness with yeah, my yeah. friends that yeah. we're all able to do that yeah. do you know what I mean like I, I would be very privileged in that sense to have a friend yeah. like that as well but there is an awful lot of people that don't and then they have these issues and they're afraid to go to their own healthcare professionals for fear of being ridiculed or fear of a medical professional not knowing exactly what's wrong yeah. with them yeah. like people have had these surgeries like we are travelling through this pandemic to have our surgeries because people have been booked in for these for a year and a half, two years. They're not yeah, going to just wait. say... Not a hope. No, like, I'm going to wait another two years no. because, you know... A, a Unfortunately, st- no. No, and a study done by uh, Tenny, I think it was 2013, 14. Someone's going to give out to me because I probably got that year wrong. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, like, the statistic was 80-something percent of trans people had attempted or... Um, attempted suicide had suicidal ideation or self-harmed prior to medical treatment uh, and that dropped to zero percent after they obtained medical treatment i can speak for all of us i think in this room when i do say that prior to any kind of medical treatment we all have had suicidal ideation or we've all had some sort of some sort of brush with like suicidal thoughts or anything like that but it just it, it it really does go to show that i remember being so depressed i had an attempted suicide before i had started hormones i was in hospital i was on dialysis they had to call poison control because they didn't even know what i'd taken i was out for three days and i remember waking up and thinking i didn't want to wake up this wasn't what i wanted to do i kind of wished i was dead and i remember the day i went to the pharmacy and i collected my estrogen patches and I stood outside the pharmacy and I looked at them and I everything just kind of went away. And it, since that, every milestone that I've hit in my transition, because I remember years ago when I first started my transition and I said to my GP, like, I want, I want it all done now. Like, I want to be able to go in and I want to have breast augmentation. I want to have a vaginoplasty. I want to have facial feminization. I want all of this now. And she was like, no, no, it's a journey. And I never understood that until maybe kind of three to four years into my transition. Then I realized, well, the things that I've learned from my transition and those small little milestones that don't seem like anything to anyone else is are massive. Yeah. Oh my god, it's yeah. like and that, drastic. That, that's they something are. I try to explain to you know maybe younger trans people who you know who feel like they feel wall. like they have to do everything this At second. A, yeah, you know, and unfortunately we do have that wait time here, so we can't do everything this yeah. second. And what I always say is that you know while you're waiting on this waiting list, there are things that you can do that always bring this nice kind of rush or warm glow or whatever it is I was like so when I first legally changed my name you know for weeks afterwards I was on this this little high then when I got my gender recognition cert 
the same thing happened. Even so much as taking that step to change your hair or start using makeup or things like that, they can provide, whilst you're waiting, these these little moments of oh, happiness yeah, exactly. and, and progression. Yeah. And, you know, and people, I think, then start discovering that it is that, yeah. that journey like yeah. that we take. And if we did do everything all at once, but when, that can but, be even more difficult. For you, Noah, and for you, Jake, when you look back at those small little milestones, like I remember when I was growing my hair out and then for my first birthday after I, trans- after I transitioned, now bear in mind, I'm transitioning over six years and my first birthday, I got a female birthday card. And to me, oh, that was yes. just... But it's those small little things that you do look back on. Maybe at the time you feel like this isn't moving quick enough, but in hindsight, Everything happened when it was supposed to, I think. Yeah. Well, there, there is your limitations there, obviously, about healthcare and stuff. But, but I do love those small moments. So actually, only three weeks ago, my dad introduced me as Noah to someone for the very first time. And you see, it's not that my parents are anti-trans or anything like that. It, they don't they're fashioned, quite they? understand it. Yeah. And I think they're finding it that little bit more difficult or take not that little bit more difficult, but taking that little bit more time to get used to it. I mean... I'm bringing them on a transition too. Do you know what I mean? So they have always found it very difficult to call me Noah or he or him. And we were away on a hotel break like three weeks ago and we met up with my brother's partner's family and he introduced me. He was like, oh, this is Noah. And I just kind of... Like it, it, yeah. and half of me went, oh my god, this Go is smack. amazing. The other half of me was like, it sounded so forced and weird. <laughs> like as as much as I've been wanting them yeah. to call me Noah, as yeah. soon as he yeah. said it, I was like, Ugh. like, but not <laughs> uh, in so it. Not uh, in it. This is a discussion, but know, this yeah. is the first. I was not prepared it's, it's for alien. that. Yeah, yeah. 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 It, it was very strange. Um, but it is those little things, like you said, Paige, about getting a, a birthday card or a Christmas card for the first time in your name or yeah. anything like that, and. It's funny when we go through these family situations, I think especially. So unfortunately, last October, my uncle passed away very prematurely. So it was a bit of a a shock to us all. And we were all at the wake. And I remember it's difficult for other family members. So one of my aunts would always call me Noah to my face and things like that. But because we were in this family situation where some called me Noah, some didn't, they she, she kind of brought me over and whispered, do you mind awfully if I call you your old name or I just feel a bit uncomfortable around everyone and I kind of first I was like mm. and then I was like actually do you know what it's actually fine there's a more important thing happening yeah. here today yeah. than people being worried about what to call me yeah so you know in some situations I'd be like do you know what no I'd prefer if you call me my name but then I kind of like okay she's in her 60s her late 60s yeah. um but it's like she, I know she's made the effort yeah so it, there, there are weird moments that trans people go through like that, that you just really have to make a call on whether I'm going to be upset with this or whether I'm just going to let it go. But you also know, like in, in the, the amount of time that you've been transitioning, you know that her doing that isn't on you in a sense where like you're not going to feel in any way insecure, insecure by her calling you by your old name for the simple fact that you know who you are and you know how far you come, you've come in your transition and that's not going to knock you. But do you think that if that had happened three or four years ago? Would that have been a little bit more raw? I think so. I think it's because I've gotten so used to everybody I know, other than some family members calling me Noah, that yeah. now it feels much weirder hearing my old name. And, um, you know, my partner, 
has a friend that has the same old name as me and I hadn't told my partner my old name and w- when we were introduced I was just like for about an hour I was a bit brave yeah, yeah. like with, with my old name being said all the time and I actually like at one point when someone said her name oh, I, you I turned to look yeah. and I was like oh my god oh, yeah. what is yeah. wrong with me a couple of weeks ago I was walking down the road and I walked by a group of people and my old name was shouted really loudly but you were calling someone else and for a split second I stopped and I was like oh shit I've been I've been found <laughs> so I like slowly turned my head and no one was looking at me and I was like oh my god and then as I was walking I was like why did I even fucking turn but it's ingrained oh it can be an absolute mindfuck oh my god say fuck sorry yeah um, no well sure we've it, said worse now <laughs> yeah we because have. times when you're in a situation like when I was away at my family and I was being called she and her quite a lot which mm-hmm. gets really weird when you're sitting in a hotel restaurant yeah. and your dad goes oh she lord her next and point at it's, you it's, and the yeah. waiter looks behind like, you for yeah, where is exactly. she yeah. you know and I'm like sorry it means me he's just gay and uses she for everybody um, but <laughs> but like it, 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 I found that while I was in the hotel I accidentally without thinking walked towards the female bathrooms okay. which is something I hadn't done in ages but yeah. obviously psychologically like people were like she 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 to me that I was that like, it just was a great like, yeah like, weird yeah. but this hasn't happened to me in so long but like that's another thing a lot of trans people don't really talk about or you sometimes can lose your nerve even if I've been, say, using male bathrooms for I don't know how long, but all of a sudden you're in a bar you don't know or you don't really know the clientele and you're like, I'm just yeah. going to use the accessible toilet here. Yeah, Even though I, like, do, yeah. I, I pass yeah. and I, you know, which I, I hate the word pass, but I can't think of an alternative. I do as well, but yeah. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. But it's more passing to yeah, society, really. Sometimes your confidence just gets knocked by it these does, things. It does, it does get knocked. And like I've even found lately, like the amount of time that I've been transitioning, I've always had some sort of anxiety but at the beginning of my transition, it was very, very, very bad. It peaked. And then it kind of disappeared a little bit. But I find lately, sometimes I wake up and I'll get ready and I'll be about to leave the house and this sudden burst of anxiety makes me not want to leave. Mm-hmm. And that's basically because I feel like that if I was to walk down the street and someone would look at me, my first instant reaction in my head is, oh my God, they know I'm trans. I'm like but that as well. They might be looking at me and saying, oh, isn't she attractive? That's or exactly oh, what I like what yeah. she's wearing. And or, they probably are. Like, yeah, but then like, you can't help but feel that sort of anxiety in your head. And especially that, yeah. social situations sometimes. Oh, I've been at many, many gatherings and many parties over the years. And all of a sudden it's like your social battery runs out and you're like, yeah. oh no. And then you, your guard kind of starts to slip away and you're sitting there and you're like, oh my God, someone's looking at me and you just can't help but just leave yeah. because you feel uncomfortable. Yeah. yeah, yeah, no, I get that. And I think the other thing about being quite openly out and trans is that a lot of people, not my closest friends, of course, but a lot of people, just the cop- topic of conversation always seems to be your <laughs> trans, trans identity. It's, it's like, you meet yeah. people somewhere and they're like, oh no, so like, when did you come out and this and that? And I'm like, yeah. Can I just be Noah for like yeah, a yeah, minute yeah. and not be trans Noah yeah. for like a minute? So Noah, um, obviously we've had the ra- the marriage referendum and the Gender Recognition Act of 2015 and that's all well and good, that's great and we've reached these specific milestones within our country but is there anything else that you think that we, we or, or anyone that would be listening could tackle inequality wise? Yeah, so you're dead right in saying, you know, in 2015 in all of its wonderfulness and glory we did get you know marriage equality and the gender recognition act but what that did is they it put both the public and 
the political world, it, it gave them some complacency as like, that's all we need to do for the LGBT community. They're all equal now. And that's that's absolutely not the case. What I'd often say is that trans people right now are way, where gay men were in the 70s. We apparently have a psychiatric uh, condition, which is not true because it was declassified. The World Health Organization declassified that in yeah. 2015, was it? Or uh, 2010? 18. 18. Yeah. Oh, I'm yeah. sorry. There was talk about it right up till that point. Yeah. It was finally done. So what we still need to do here is... The Gender Recognition Act is great. And at the time, it was one of the leading pieces of gender recognition legislation in the world. But we've fallen behind now. So the Gender Recognition Act is a very binary piece of legislation, which means you can only identify as male or female. And that leaves out a huge cohort of the trans community who are non-binary, gender non-conforming, who don't identify within the gender binary. So we need to introduce recognition for non-binary people legally, as well as open up the Gender Recognition Act to younger people of the ages of 16 and 17, because it's not Self, they cannot self-identify their gender yeah. uh, at the moment. So that's something we need to fix. We need to get that reviewed and we need to get it changed without delay. And then healthcare. Healthcare is probably the number one issue for trans people it's in Ireland. Yeah, it is. Um, yeah. We, need to, we need to revamp the whole system. We need to start working off an informed consent model uh, from WPAT, the World Association for Transgender Health. We need to catch up with other countries that are using this correct model uh, and get rid of this uh, psychiatric model that we're currently using. And the way people can help us do that is when you see any trans people run a campaign or speak about this, it's supporting them, it's joining in on those campaigns. One very easy thing that people can do is write to their TDs, write to ministers, write to the HSE and say this is not right. And that takes very little to do, but can make a big impact. And as well, the very last thing I'd say is transphobia, which is currently being imported uh, from other countries to Ireland at the moment. It's very scary to see. So it's when you hear an anti-trans remark or an anti-trans joke, it's actually, if it's safe to do so, standing up and saying, no, we don't take that here. You know, and largely in Ireland, there's no real appetite for transphobia, but there are a small few that are making big waves. Personally, like we are in 2021, we are in this time of great change and whatever. But I personally, over the last year, I personally have been in situations where I felt unsafe and that is genuinely down to transphobia. And then as well, like I have friends that are straight cis girls and would be in relationships for years with guys and these guys would make a transphobic remark but to try and make it funny and And you know that kind of way. And it's not funny. And then like I'm not going to I will call it out as best I can, but then I'm looking at my friend and my friend is not calling out her partner making a transphobic comment towards me. So I think some people think that... People could do better in those types of situations, for sure. Yeah, but sometimes it's like, okay, right, I get it. You're making, you're you're trying to make the situation a little bit more comfortable by making a joke. That's your way of kind of getting over the awkwardness. But you're the butt of the joke, which is not nice. Yeah, I'm like, bitch, I'm allowed to joke about myself and my own transness, but you are not, unless I give you permission. Exactly. (laughs) But I also find as well, a a lot of people, a lot of people will be, feeling a little bit weird around trans people for the simple fact that they would be associated so I've I found yeah. recently that I, I know a few people and there's one person that I know specifically now in my in my life right now that would be absolutely terrified to be known to be associated with me for the simple fact that I'm trans because they know yeah. that that their friends and everything would be like oh my god are you friends with are you friends with like a girl that used to be a boy and that is like, pathetic that's, yeah that's yeah. a pathetic it's way of thinking but that's a pathetic way of thinking like, this goes back to what, what i was what? saying about trans people being where gay men were in the 70s because oftentimes there was groups political groups and things like that who didn't want to be associated with gay men yeah. because gay men were criminals do you know what yeah. i mean yeah. that yeah. it was not and, yeah. and that's all you were seen as it's kind of 
a similar situation, although we're not crim like we're not legally criminals, um, like gay men were in the seventies, eighties, and even first couple of years in the nineties. But it's kind of the same stigma. It's kind of like oh, trans people are a bit weird or they're not well or something yeah, like yeah. that. So yeah. you know, and I do wonder about how many of say my cousins or things like that ever say think- that I'm trans. You know, like it's it's interesting because my niece, uh, she's great now. She's no problem. How with old me, is really. your niece? The older one is. Eight and the younger one is four. Eight. I have an eight-year-old niece. That I think I know what you're getting at. Well, go on, go she on. she said uh, to me the other day, we learned about LGBT, and oh. I was like, ah, oh. I was like, and she's from a Catholic like national school, okay. you know, and I was like, ooh. Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> so I said, I said to her, okay. So what does the L stand for? And she goes, love. And I went, uh, oh, yes. yeah, kind oh, of. Yeah, and then she went, yeah. oh no, 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 I mean lesbian. And I was like, yay. Oh. And I said, what does G stand for? And she goes, gay. And I was like. Yeah, well done. I said in the B, and she goes bye, and she shouted it. And I was like, <laughs> and I was like, and what does the T stand for? And she was like, hmm. And I was like, oh my god, are you for real, Willow? And she's like, oh, transgender. And I said, well, I'm two of those things. Do you know what they are? And she was like, well, you just told me you're transgender. And uh, bye. I was like, no, no, gay. And she was like, oh. And she goes, but I didn't put my hand up in school and tell my teacher that. And I was like, why? And she went, oh, it's not because of you. I wasn't, oh, she was, yeah. I just don't like speaking out loud in class. And I was like, yeah, cute. I was That's like, cool. I don't know whether she was trying to save yeah. herself or not, yeah. but she, no, she's great. My niece is aware that I'm trans, but to what extent, I don't know. Like Doesn't years, really yeah, it. years ago, like, like she would have never really called me by my birth name or anything like that. But yeah. there has been a couple of times where she, she, I know that she's consciously aware of it, but she came back in and she was like, my friends were asking me lots of questions, like being like, oh, so like, are you a boy or are you, you know, that kind of way. And then I, and then it was like, right, I'm going to have to sit down. So my sister's there and I was like, right, time to have this little conversation. So trying to explain to an eight year old about, it's, it's kind of like in one ear out the other, but at the same time, it's very crucial because she will take certain parts of that conversation and that will stick in her mind. Exactly. So yeah, you have to really think about, yeah, like. like Willow, Still remembers me pre-transition. Oh, really? And Willow still remembers my my name pre-transition. Well, Sometimes see, my niece she'll... remembers my name pre-transition, but I don't think she would have remembered me because she would have been three, yeah, two no. or three when I had transitioned. But I was now. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna say like I. I look the way I look now. But at the beginning of my transition, it was touch and go. Like I had like cornrows and I wore dolly shoes. I looked in bits. <laughs> but like she, she would have remembered. We've all been there. Yeah, we've all been there. Kind of. I think a lot of us go through this thing where they uh we oh try to over either feminize or masculinize when we first come out oh, yeah, to well, try our absolute best. And then we fall into this more comfortable kind of now we're ourselves sense of self. People. Yeah. Like I have this mantra now that it's like, I tried so hard to act like overly or hyper feminine. That's yeah. like femininity is not what you give to somebody else in a social setting. Femininity is how you feel. And, and it's, it's the same with masculinity. So if you feel like that in your aura and in yourself, you do radiate that. <laughs> right. So no, it's been an absolute pleasure. Like, oh, this I is a lot of fun. It has. Thank I you so this, much. I think this, this has been one of the best ones. That concludes another episode of the Trans Vibe Podcast with myself, Paige, and... And me, Jake. <laughs> <laughs> Goodbye, guys. See you next time, guys. Bye. Bye.